There was once a young man who had always wanted to play basketball. But when he, when he tried out for his high school team, he was told by the coach that you're too short. You're only five foot eleven. Not to mention the fact that, you know, your skills and, and your finesse just aren't there. You're not a real basketball player. So that night he went home and he cried. But he had this goal in his mind. He was not going to give up. He was going to try harder. So he practiced, and he began this intense training program the very next day after he failed to make the team. And finally, in his junior year of high school, he made the team. But that's just the beginning of his story. He went on to college, and he played for a North Carolina university. But he didn't get a full-ride scholarship. So he would have to write home to his mother, ask her, for, first of all, for money so that he could eat and, spend, and have a little spending money. And he, asked, he actually would write to her and say, Mom, can you send me some stamps so that I can send you a letter home? Now, when he started on the team in North Carolina, the expectations were very low for this young man. He was inconsistent in his playing. The coach said that he just didn't have it. He, he, didn't, wasn't, you know, he didn't play the same all the time. But he says, you know, there's one thing about this man, there's one thing about this young man that really outshines all the others, and that was his determination and his work ethic. For the next three years... He worked harder than anyone else on the team. When the team was done practicing, what he would do is he'd stay after, and he would continue to practice for hours. He learned, and he grew. And when the team played the powerhouse Georgetown in the 1982 National Championship, is this young man who made the game-winning shot. Who's this young man? Anybody know? Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. Now, I don't tell you this story to convince you that you just need to try harder, and if you work hard at something, you're going to be a success. That's not why I share this story with you. I tell you the story to set us up to see how something that seems like a failure, something that looks like it's going to be horrible and, and going to come to nothing, in reality can bring something that brings glory greater than you could ever imagine. You know, one of the most painful things to experience as a father is watching your son die. But in our text today, we're going to look we're going to look at this mystery of this agony that Christ suffered and we're also going to see into the heart of his father so let's open our bibles to Isaiah 53 we're still in chapter 53 and we're going to begin with verse 10 but I want to actually take a step back into verse 9 cuz I want to kind of set up where we are remember it's talking about um, how he was going to be going to be crucified, and, and it says, and they made his grave with the wicked, this is in verse 9, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth, Jesus never sinned, he, the, he's, and Isaiah's talking about the Messiah, he doesn't sin, but he still dies. Verse 10 says, yet, we're going to talk about that word in a second, yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. 
He has put him to grief. That word, yet. Even though this is going on, this is what matters. What matters is that God wanted to crush him. It says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now, the ESV translate this, translates this Jewish word, which is hafaz, H-A-P-A-S, as will, which it was God's will. There's no doubt about it. But if you actually look up the meaning of the word in Jewish, and it's not will. The actual meaning of this word is pleasure. Now, you put that word in there. It was the pleasure of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Now, why would God, the Father, be pleased to crush his own son? You know, you and I, we live in a world of instant gratification. And we've been saying this for quite a long time. You know, we want what we want when we want it. Instant this, instant that. I remember the day when you would take a picture and you had to wait a while. You had to take it someplace to have it developed, you know? And then you get the pictures back and you're like, well, that was a bad one, (laughs) you know? Nowadays, what do you do? I take my film phone out and I take a picture. Oh, I don't like that one. Delete it. Or if you're like some people, you don't delete it and you've got 500 pictures on your phone. 300 of them are out of focus and you can't tell what it is. But we are an instant gratification people. We, we no longer wait for the oatmeal to cook on the stove. How many, when was the last time you actually cooked oatmeal on the stove? What do you do? I know, you do. <laughs> Normally what most people do is they go and they rip the packet open, they put it in, they put the water in, they pop it in the microwave for a minute and a half, three minutes, you're done. I'm sorry, the... Instant oatmeal just doesn't clump like the old-fashioned oatmeal does. We use instant rice. And we cook it in an instant pot, which I always think is funny because it's nothing more than a pressure cooker, but they call it an instant pot, you know, because pressure cooker didn't say what it was instant cooking, so they had to call it something else. I, I just think it's hilarious. Our lives have become busy enough we don't want to wait we want it now. I think back to the, <laughs> I think back to Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and, and Veruca. Veruca, yeah. Daddy, I want a golden goose that lays golden eggs for Easter, and I want it now. You know. Yeah. We want it now. But the reality is that the English proverb that good things come to those who wait is actually very, very true probably more so than we wish to admit. You know, Michael Jordan, I bring him up only because he he didn't instantaneously become a great basketball player. That's the hard thing about life. When I first learned to play guitar, I wanted I, I promised God if you if you help me play guitar, I will I will always play guitar for you. Okay? And I thought that first day, I'll have it down like that. God'll do it. Guess what? It took months for me to learn how to play. And I'm still learning how to play. And it took months for my fingers to get hardened up to where I wouldn't hurt every single time I played. If you touch my fingers now, i got calluses. They're permanently there now, so I can play and it doesn't hurt. 
things don't happen instantaneously for us in all things because good things, the really good things, may take longer. There were probably many times that Michael Jordan went home or went back to his dorm and was just, his body ached from being overworked to achieve the success that he wanted. But it says that God was pleased to crush Christ. Now, I want you to understand, he was not pleased with the process. What he was pleased with was the result of the suffering of Christ on the cross. He wasn't happy that Christ was on the cross. He didn't find pleasure in torturing him on the cross. He didn't find pleasure in what the Romans did to him. He found pleasure in what that was going to achieve. It was going to achieve the eternal glory of God. And God would God the Father would receive the eternal joy that came from that. And you and I, we we get to receive the eternal glory and joy that came from Christ being crushed. It's not about the process. It's about what that process is going to bring about. I, I want us to understand that, that God, God's a happy God. You know, most of the time we think of, we might picture God as this stern father figure, you know. He's not smiling. Oh, no, God smiles. God laughs. I think most of the time he laughs at us because we are pretty funny people. He created us. He finds joy in us. Scripture does not paint God as the stern-looking God who's always trying to find something wrong that we do and trying to punish us for it. Yes, there are times when his righteous wrath can be seen, but that's that's always balanced by his grace and his love and his compassion that he has for his creation. Psalm 115.3 says, says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God does what pleases him, and no one can stop him. It pleased God to create heaven and earth. When he created everything, what did he say about it? It's good. And when he finally finished it all, he says, it's very good. He pleased him to create the life that's in creatures all around us. It pleased him to create life and man and to, to put his breath in and to create him as man and woman and to put his image upon them so that we would be we would be his representatives here on earth. Why did he do that? He did it because it brought him pleasure. It made him happy. Now, I'm going to give you a very interesting and perplexing thought. And before you gasp and want to string me up by my feet... Hear me out and understand what I'm saying. This is my logic. This is how the logic plays out. If God does what he pleases, and if God is sovereign, which means he has sovereignty over all things, then it pleased God to allow Satan to rebel. He didn't like the rebellion, believe me. But what pleased him was what was going to be the result of that. Ultimately, it pleased God to allow Satan to rebel and to fall into weakness. It also pleased God to allow Adam and Eve to fall to temptation. Because how much more is God glorified when man returns to him than if he would have been if he was had no choice? Now that he has he was pleased with Adam and Eve's actions, but what 
those actions would ultimately bring about. That's what pleased him, his eternal glory and and our eternal joy. God was very pleased to work out this very perplexing and complex plan of salvation. The the, the plan of salvation is is easy on its surface to understand, but man, you really get down to the nuts and bolts of it. It's pretty complex. But he was pleased to create it for humanity to be redeemed and all of creation ultimately to be redeemed. In pleasure, God chose Abraham out of all of mankind to be the forefather of the Messiah. It pleased God to bless Abraham and his descendants, but he also pleased him to allow them to go to Egypt and ultimately into slavery. And at the right time to raise up Moses to bring them out of Egypt by his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. In Deuteronomy 28.63, this is what it says. I found this very interesting. It says, and as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, hey, God took lots of delight in multiplying the number, allowing the the Israelites to grow in size and to do good for them, to take care of them. It says, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. In everything that God does and God allows, understand, he keeps the end game in sight. It's kind of like what Paul says. Paul says, I run the race, what? As to win. He's always looking towards the prize. He doesn't pay attention to the things that are going on today. He's looking towards the prize at the end of that race. And that's what God does. God is an end game player. And everything that occurs is moving towards his perfect will. It may not seem like it at the time. It may like seem like things are way off base. But I want to be honest with you, all the garbage that's going on in this world is ultimately going to lead to God's will being done. And God's will is good. And it's good for us in the long run. And it brings him and ultimately will bring us pleasure. Now some people think when they think about the cross, they think about it as kind of like a heavenly child abuse. How could God punish his son that way? What they don't understand is that the Father's love for Christ is more than any human father can ever have for his son and more than we could ever fathom. I'll be honest with you, my love for Caleb, my son, and I'll even say my daughter Abigail, is not one billionth a percent of what God's love is for Christ. And I love my children dearly. I would lay down my life for them. When Jesus was being baptized by John, his cousin, he goes down, he comes up out of the water, and in Matthew 3, 17, he says, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son. I love my Son, with whom I am well pleased. And again, when Jesus is on the top of Mount Hermon, and he's with his disciples, with Peter, James, and John, and Moses and Elijah are standing there with him, We hear God's voice again. Peter is speaking. It says, when he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus will be crushed. Now, how was Jesus crushed? 
It pleased God to crush him. And this idea of being crushed is like a huge amount of weight, this huge amount of pressure being put. It's like a stamping machine. If you've ever looked at, watched a, a show or been in a factory where they're stamping out, pressing out stuff, the amount of pressure, the millions and thousands of millions and all this pressure that's built, that's pushed upon this one product just to mold it out. Imagine all the sins ever committed by all of mankind, past, present, future, being laid upon Jesus. This overpowering weight of guilt, of anguish, of pain, of sadness, all focused on one man. It would be overwhelming to the strongest of men. But understand, Jesus took it willingly and with pleasure. How do I know he did it with pleasure? Because it says in Hebrews, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, Hebrews 2, 12, 2, who for the joy that was set before him, and it's not talking about the cross, it's talking about what comes after the cross, but for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That is, is the joy. Again, we see God not focusing on the here and now. You and I live so much on in the here and now. I'm guilty of it. That's why sometimes I have to, I was like, I, I can't watch the news. I can't watch YouTube. I can't, I just got to stop. Because it becomes too overwhelming. It keeps me focused here. I need to focus on the future, on the end game. Jesus took no pleasure on the cross, in the cross, except to know what it was, was going to accomplish. But he endured it. Why? Because of what it was going to do, what his sacrifice would ultimately do. Now, understand, how did God actually feel about the process? Well, there was darkness over the land over the whole area. The moment that Jesus died, day became night. There was a tremendous earthquake. The temple, the, the fabric that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the sanctuary was torn in two. It was so, it rattled so much. That is what his father was feeling. In verse 10, it says, When his soul makes an offering for guilt of Isaiah 53, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And again, we see this substitutionary atonement. His soul makes an offering for guilt. Jesus did not die for his own sin. He was sinless. It was not his own wickedness, his guilt, that led him to the cross. It was ours. God made his soul a sin offering so that we might live with God forever. And because of this, Jesus gets to see his offspring. Well, wait a minute. Jesus was never married, no matter what Dan Brown or anybody else says. He wasn't married. So who are his offspring? It's us. We are his children. We are the ones who have come back after him, who believe. All those who believe in him and trust in him for salvation are his offspring. And he sees us. 
If it were not for the sacrifice of Christ, what would have happened? You and I would be the ones who were being crushed. God's justice must play out. If it wasn't for Christ being crushed, we would have been crushed eternally in hell, separated from God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit forever. But now, Jesus will see us when we are with him in eternity. We'll see him face to face. I'll be known as I am known. We will see, we will stand before him. But now Jesus will see us and we are with him in eternity. In Old Testament, it was a huge blessing. If you lived long enough to see your grandchildren and then to see your grandchildren's children, which would be your great-grandchildren, that was a huge blessing. Think of all the generations that Jesus, of his children that Jesus gets to see. And then also the end of verse 10 in Isaiah 53 says, The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Well, we know what his will was. His will was for Christ to pay the ultimate price for all of us. And it prospers. This substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross was the perfect and pleasing will of God the Father. God God the Father had entrusted Christ with doing this. Was fulfilling this amazing complex plan for salvation. And by that death of Christ, we have this beautiful and wonderfully prospered, like garden of flowers that's fragrant. His, his death brought us that. Or it's this beautiful garden of fruits and vegetables. I have that on my mind because I've been planting this week. And it's pleasing to the palate. I plant my plants and I'm like, Oh, I can't wait till I can taste these peppers. I can't wait till this grows and I can taste that. And we're picking berries. Oh, they just taste so good. When I plant them, it's not—it's no big deal. I don't—I don't get to enjoy it. But in the future, I will. And 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 Christ is Christ paying the price for us. One day we're going to get to enjoy being with Him. He's going to see us, His offspring. Verse 11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Again, we're going on with the substitutionary atonement idea. This this, uh, very complex theology of Christ paying the price. He bore our iniquities. He bore our sins. Why? Why? so that you and I could have righteousness, his righteousness. Imagine Christ standing back and evaluating, looking at what God's plan is for salvation. You know, weighing the pluses in my life. I got to do this, but oh boy, we get this. And how, do you, how do you think he felt about it? I mean, I'm sure he, lo- he loved the idea of it. He loved the idea of doing it. He wanted to do it. He did it. He's, he's, but there was a time in his life when, uh, on this earth for a short time where he's in anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why? Because he knows he's going to have to go through this terrible thing. But boy, what an awesome future it creates. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in Qumran, one of them was the Isaiah Scroll. And these verses are in, on that scroll. But they, they added a little something to it, which is interesting. It says, out of the anguish of his soul he shall see, and up here it says, 
uh, he shall see and be satisfied, they add, he shall see the light. The anguish that Christ suffered does not remain. But it's going to be transformed into the dawning light of victorious joy. And when Christ evaluated what was going to happen and he looked at what was ultimately going to be accomplished by what he did, he was satisfied. He was satisfied. I mean, I'm sure that Jesus enjoys clearing sinners of their guilt. Here's another one, Father. Here's another one. Here's another one. Calling them righteous even though it, it demanded that he bear such a huge weight on the cross. But we know that he's not suffering anymore. He said on the cross, it's finished, it's done, it's been paid. And today all over the world he gets to enjoy the satisfaction and the immense pleasure of making many wayward sinners righteous before his Father. It says in verse 12 of Isaiah 53, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Here we have the whole culmination of Isaiah 53. The eternal glory of Christ and his substitutionary atonement. The verse here begins with the word therefore. Think of it as as a result of. As a result of his his sacrifice, Christ is getting what he deserves. And I'm not talking about the cross. I'm talking about the exaltation, the exalting that happens after it. Paul told the church at Philippi in Philippians 2, he says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is what the result is, and that is what pleases God. And Jesus deserves the spoils of his victory over death, and over sin. We see this. We see what he deserves in Revelation 5. It says, then John is speaking here. He says, Then I saw on the right hand of him who is seated on the throne, that's God the Father, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Does, not just anybody can do this. You and I cannot walk up and break the seals. We have not earned the right to do so. And John says, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. So what does John do? He says, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. We think we're good. We think we're good enough. Oh, no, we are not. None of us are worthy of righteousness. The only thing that makes us worthy of righteousness is Jesus Christ. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus is the greatest warrior in history. He's been victorious over our greatest enemy. He deserves the spoils and being worthy of opening the scroll 
And that's just the beginning. In the battle between good and evil, you and I, we are the spoils. The battle that's been going on since the beginning has always, we have always been the spoils. When God created man, when God created Adam and created Eve, Satan did not like it. And he wants us. And if he can't have us, he wants us destroyed. He just doesn't, he, he doesn't care how it happens, he just doesn't want God to have us. That is the battle that we are in. We are the spoils. See, the battle, the war has been won. And Jesus has won it. And if you're a follower of Christ, you have placed your faith, or if you place your faith in him, and you wish to surrender your life to him, you are no longer yourself. You have a new master. You are not your own. 1 Corinthians, Paul says this. 1 Corinthians 6, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? It's not your body, it's, it's his. Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I'm, I'm going to say this, and I may get censored sometime in the future for this, but this whole the whole transgender issue is not glorifying God in the body at all. See, we are not our own. We are bought with a price. But but Jesus doesn't just take us and set us up on a shelf like a trophy. That he can look at. No. What he is doing, he is actively interceding on our behalf. Verse 12 says, Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. When Jesus ascended to the Father, he went to God's right hand. He's at the place of honor. And from that place of honor, he speaks for us, interceding for us. Paul tells the church at Rome, in the church in Rome, as he says in Romans 8:34, he says, Who is to condemn? Who can condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed is interceding for us. If we surrender to Christ, we are no longer condemned. Jesus intercedes for us with the Father, and guess what? He bears the scars to show that he paid the price. Oh, nope, that one's ours. How do I know? Look, look, I'm still scarred. I paid that one. I paid for that one. We must remember that the cross is not some just some religious ideal. No, the cross is power. And it's still working today. When Christ came down, he came to a place of misery and strife. And today he's enjoying the spoils of his victory over sin and death. Today he is actively saving people. Those who have opposed him in the past are now being traded as friends. And they're sharing in his victory. He stands before the Father, speaking up for the very ones who drove him to his death. That's us, our sin. Evil cannot and will not ever conquer or understand the power of the cross. Jesus won. He has the right to justify the ungodly. 
And nothing, nothing can ever take that away from him. So what do we do with our verses today? How can we take this and apply it to our lives? Well, first of all, if you're lost, if, you, if you're not a believer in Christ, if, if you don't know who he is, you need to surrender your life to him. Don't leave here today without doing so. The battle for your soul continues to rage. And even though Jesus has won the war, we still have to fight the battles. Turn to Christ, be saved, and you will enjoy the spoils of victory. If you don't turn to Christ, you're going to suffer the consequences of defeat. If you've surrendered to Christ, then rejoice in your salvation. Find joy in your salvation. Be confident in it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, as it says. But be confident in it. We we continue to go astray in our sin. We are are wandering. We're like sheep who go astray. We talked about that the last couple weeks. We continually do so. But thank Christ that he suffered for us. He he suffered in our place, and we need to trust him more and more. And and we need to lay it at his feet because he will fully, ultimately, fully cure us from our wandering. I'm just afraid for most of us, it's not going to be until he comes back. We're still going to wander. But the great thing about it is that he has grace on us, and we can continually go back to him. You know, when Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how many times do I need to forgive my brother? Seven times? And Peter thought he was being generous. No, Jesus is 70 times 7. Now, you might think, well, what's 70 times 7? That's 490. Well, that's not very many times. Now, you understand, Jesus wasn't exactly putting that number on it to say at 491, you're done. What he was saying is that's a huge number, and you need to always forgive. Guess what? When we actually repent and go to Christ, he always forgives us. Present your wandering to him, lay it at his feet. Again, as I said in weeks past, we need to share this chapter with those we love in our lives and anyone who will listen. Explain how seven centuries before Christ, Isaiah wrote this message, and you want to emphasize the we, you know, we like sheep have gone astray, and we also want to emphasize the he, he has died for us in both of those things. And if you're suffering in this life, as many of us do and will, we need to meditate on the resurrection body that, the, that Jesus has won for us. One day, this will be done. I'm, I did a lot of work outside yesterday. I'm hot right now. I'm sweaty. I know you didn't need to know that. I'm hurting. My knee hurts. My back hurts. You know, the day is coming where that won't matter anymore. The day is coming where there won't be no pain, no sorrow, no crying. Why? Because we'll have a resurrected body that's perfect. We've got to remember that. In the midst of our pain and our anguish and the suffering that we do, we've got to remember that this is a temporary body. Our new body is waiting for us. We're going to, it's going to happen one day. Focus on the resurrection body that Christ has won for us. Rejoice in the promise of new life and the new body that is to come. Think about what Jesus went through for our sins. Boy, what I suffer in my life is nothing compared to what Jesus suffered. Nothing at all. He was pierced. He was crushed. We need to learn to hate sin as much as God does. Hate it. Fight it. 
while trusting for the forgi- in the forgiveness of the cross. If you're feeling lonely and unloved, remember that the Father demonstrated the greatest love ever by not sparing Jesus, His only Son, His only special Son, but crushing Him for the forgiveness of your sins. If you feel like you're being crushed and are suffering, understand, if, if, it, if it's not because, remember there's two ways that we suffer. One is because we've done something we're not supposed to and we suffer the consequences. That's, that's, that's on us. But there's other testing that happens in our lives and it's because God is allowing it and it pleases Him. Why? Because it's for your good and for the joy that comes from it. What we're experiencing now, the, when, when it's not something, you know, if I go, if I go rob a bank and, you know, if I go, if I go 180 miles an hour on 469 and I have an auto accident, it's my fault. You know, God's not punishing me and making me go through this. I did that to me. But if there are things that are outside of our control and they're happening to us, God is allowing things to happen to us to change us, to grow us. It pleases Him. It's for our good and for the joy that's going to come from it. What you're experiencing is no accident. We may not see it now. We don't always see it now. Sometimes it's difficult to see it. But ultimately, good is going to come out if you trust in His will. And for all of us, give Christ the spoils He deserves. Give Himself, give Him yourself fully. Present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. That is our spiritual act of worship. He earned it. He paid for it. You are His. So give yourself to Him. Let's pray.